There may be no justice for the death of Ruby Rose Barrameda after her body was found cemented in a steel drum and thrown into the Pacific Ocean. The accused murderers seem to live above the law in a mafia-like family. Hello, Twisted listeners. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. Welcome aboard. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. And if you're a new listener, just a quick heads up that I do record on a boat, so you'll hear some um, boat noises in the background now and then, but I don't think they're too intrusive. If you like what you hear today, it would mean a lot to me if you'd leave me a rating and a nice review, if you can. Um, You could also become a supporter of the podcast if you like. There are links in the show description. Uh, You can either contribute monthly or a one-time donation through Venmo. I'd also love to hear if you have any case suggestions or comments on the cases we've covered already. You can find me on social media on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram, or you can email me at Twisted Travel and True Crime at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. All right, today we will travel to the Philippines, which consists of over 7,000 islands in the Pacific Ocean. They are known for their amazing fruit and beautiful beaches. Of interest to the morbidly curious tourists like me, there are a group of people called the Sagara. They practice a unique burial ritual. The elderly carve out their own coffins out of hollowed logs. If they're too weak or ill, the families prepare the coffins instead. The dead are placed inside their coffins, sometimes breaking their bones in the process of fitting them in, and the coffins are brought to an elevated cave for burial. Instead of being placed in the ground, the coffins are hung on either side of the caves or on the face of cliffs outside, near the hanging coffins of their ancestors. The Sagata people have been practicing these burials for over 2,000 years, and some of the coffins are over a century old. The reasons the coffins were hung instead of buried is because of the belief that the higher the dead were placed, the greater chance their spirits would have of reaching higher nature in the afterlife. A burial at sea was out of the question for these people, but today's victim wasn't given a choice. Rochelle Barrameda and her sister Ruby Rose grew up in Manila, the capital city of the Philippines. The two grew up in a tight family and were close friends. Rochelle, the older sister, would enter into a successful modeling and acting career. Her little sister, Ruby Rose, who was just as beautiful and as kind as her older sister, was sidetracked from her career goals at age 20. That's when she met a man named Manuel Jimenez III. He swept her off her feet, and they were soon married. They tied the knot on August 1, 1999, in Los Pinos, which is where the Barrameda family comes from. Manuel Jimenez III came from a very wealthy and high-powered family. Ruby's father-in-law, Manuel Jimenez II, and his brother Lope owned a company named BSJ Fishing and Trading. But that wasn't all. Manuel II was also a well-known and successful lawyer and businessman. He owned agricultural companies, a poultry farm, and farmland, as well as several gas stations. Manuel Jimenez III, I will refer to as only third going forward and I will call his father the second just to keep things clear. After their marriage, Ruby Rose moved into the family home. During their nearly eight-year marriage, the couple would have two daughters. The first came quickly, 
right after they were married. Life seemed great for Ruby Rose. At times, Rochelle admitted to some jealousy that her sister was married to a wealthy man and didn't have to work. On the other hand, Ruby Rose wasn't satisfied being a stay-at-home mother. She admired her older sister and wanted more than to be a stay-at-home mom. So she decided to go back to school. While there, she met another man and had an affair. Third found out and confronted her. Ruby Rose apologized and promised she wouldn't continue the affair. She wrote letters to Third telling him that she would come right home after school and Third would get to search her phone whenever he wanted to. She begged for his forgiveness and he said he would forgive her. Perhaps as an attempt to move forward, they conceived a second child seven years after the first, but their marriage continued to decline. They eventually separated and filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences, and a battle for custody of their children would begin. They both wanted custody, but since Ruby Rose had chosen to leave the home, for the time being she would go to Third's house to see them for a couple hours when she could, and when the children were made available. She knew it would be an uphill battle, because her father-in-law was a lawyer, and would be sure that Third got what he wanted, and Third was very angry about Ruby Rose cheating on him. On March 14, 2007, Ruby Rose received devastating news that her motion for custody had been denied. Even worse, her husband had been given sole custody of their daughters, who were now seven years old and three months old. This news was very surprising to many, because in the Philippines it's very rare for a mother not to get custody of children under the age of seven. Normally, there would have to be things like drug use, lack of a job, abuse, negligence, or abandonment before a mother is deemed unable or unwilling to care for a child. Ruby was with Rochelle when she learned the bad news. Rochelle said that Ruby panicked and called her lawyer right away. She then decided to go to the bank and then planned to go visit her daughters at her husband's home. This was at two o'clock in the afternoon, which would be the normal agreed upon time that she would get to see the girls. Maybe she had planned to air her grievances to her soon-to-be ex-husband, but we'll never know if she did, because she disappeared. At four o'clock, Rochelle received a call from one of Ruby Rose's friends, asking for Ruby because she wasn't answering her phone calls. This made Rochelle nervous, so she tried calling Ruby Rose herself, also getting no answer. Rochelle had a maid, so she asked her to contact the Jimenez household to ask whether Ruby was there. Manuel II answered the phone, telling them that Ruby Rose was not there. Rochelle then tried calling Third to ask for Ruby Rose, but he wouldn't answer his phone. Ruby Rose would never be seen alive again. Rochelle reported her sister missing to the police. The Barrameda family began to search for her asking family and friends if anyone had seen her. They put up flyers and tried to get media attention. They offered a reward for her return or information that would lead to her return. The Jimenez family helped with search efforts, but to a much lesser degree. Time marched on, but there seemed to be no leads and the searches went nowhere. The Barrameda family was desperate for answers. They consulted mediums and psychics, the suffering family was told that their daughter was likely dead already, and one fortune teller told them to search in the sea. In 2009, 
a full two years after Ruby Rose disappeared, a man named Manuel Montero came forward. He was feeling guilty and wanted to clear his conscience, or so he said. He wanted to tell authorities what happened to Ruby Rose, but first he asked for a lesser sentence. The police were agreeable. For a lesser sentence, Manuel Montero could be state witness. Montero admitted to being scared for himself and his family. As a safety precaution, they would be put into a witness protection program. He admitted to helping kill Ruby Rose and disposing of her body. He made statements to the police on two separate occasions. His statements would be written, signed, and recorded. He told authorities how he and several other men were involved in her murder. He told them that all the men were linked to the Jimenez family in one way or another. The first, Eric Fernandez, was Lope Jimenez's driver or chauffeur. Lope Jimenez was the second's brother. He was the co-owner of the fishery, alongside second. Leonard Descalso was third's bodyguard, and Robert Ponce was one of the top employees at the Buena Suerte Jimenez Fishing Incorporated. We'll call it BSJ going forward. Montero claimed that Second planned the murder days before it happened in one of the conference rooms at the BSJ Fisheries Building. Another man named Rudy De La Cruz was asked to find the steel box. Fernandez, Descalso, and Ponce were assigned the job of abducting Ruby Rose. Montero was told to wait at the BSJ headquarters for his orders. Ruby Rose was grabbed at the Jimenez house and brought to the BSJ Fisheries property inside a white van. Descalso and Fernandez were in the van while Ponce drove Ruby Rose's green Mitsubishi Gallant. Montero saw Ruby Rose inside the van. He said something was covering her mouth and her hands and feet had been tied together. He said he tried to talk to Ruby Rose, asking her why she was being kidnapped. She responded that she didn't know and that she had done nothing wrong. He then witnessed Descalso strangle Ruby Rose. They placed her body, with her hands and feet still tied, inside a blue barrel. They filled the barrel with cement. Then they brought out a steel box. The men placed the blue drum barrel inside it then covered the barrel in cement, and finally Manuel Montero welded the box together, sealing Ruby Rose's body inside. The next day, men loaded the box into a tugboat and dropped the steel box containing Ruby Rose's body into the sea. The men returned to BSJ headquarters, where they met with Lope Jimenez and were each paid 50,000 pesos. They were asked not to talk about what happened that day and to lay low. But first, they burned Ruby Rose's vehicle and belongings. According to Montero, the reason for killing Ruby Rose was that she had shamed the Jimenez family. Montero claimed he had overheard the second discussing the matter on his phone, but didn't know who was on the other line. Based on this confession, police believed Montero. They began the search for the box. It took them two weeks, but Montero was able to lead police to the body. The metal box was fished out of the waters in Manila Bay. He was even able to describe how Ruby Rose's body lay inside the box. When officers were opening it, 
he told them where to cut so they wouldn't damage her body. The steel container emitted a scent of decay with a slight trace of brine. It was covered in rust and had clearly been underwater for quite some time. There were no discerning marks on it except for the letters R-A-L scraped on one side. On the day of Ruby Rose's parents' 37th anniversary, a day that should have been filled with happy memories of a beautiful life built together, her parents were informed that she had been found. It had taken more than two hours for the crime lab experts to remove the first layer of what served as Ruby Rose's tomb. Another couple hours were spent cutting open the light blue drum where Ruby Rose was found immersed in concrete. The entire box, including the cement, reportedly weighed nearly a ton, said an officer from the Philippine National Police Crime Laboratory. Recounting the hours the crime analysts spent prying open the tightly sealed container, the experts believed that Ruby Rose's killers had meticulously prepared for her disappearance with the intention that she would never be found. An officer said whoever was behind it really worked on it. The steel casings were welded thoroughly. The medical report said that Ruby Rose had been tortured and strangled before being placed inside the bin. Dental records proved that the body did belong to Ruby Rose. In addition, DNA and a description of the clothing she was wearing on the day she disappeared matched. Her sister said she still wore the striped shirt and khaki shorts she was last seen wearing. The only thing missing was a single diamond earring, which led police to believe that she put up a fight. After establishing that the remains were hers, the police force filed murder charges against Ruby Rose's father-in-law, Manuel II, his brother Lope, Hernandez Descalso, Ponce, and Dela Cruz, as well as the informant, Manuel Montero. The grisly details of this case shocked the community. The media went wild. Based on Montero's confession, public opinion was that the Jimenez family was responsible, and the reasoning was that Ruby Rose dared to challenge the powerful family. Ruby Rose was finally laid to rest a week after her body was found. The Barrameta family requested that Ruby Rose's daughters be able to attend her wake and funeral, but the Jimenez family, who were barred from attending the funeral, would not allow it. Rochelle had always suspected that the Jimenez family was involved, but she didn't want to lose the relationship with her nieces, so she had kept her thoughts out of the media. This changed after Montero's confession and after Ruby Rose was found. Rochelle let her suspicions be known and aired some dirty laundry about the Jimenez family and rumors about some of their illegal activities. Rochelle said, my sister was killed because she had knowledge of her in-laws' illegal activities and not over marital trouble, which I think is a shallow reason to kill her. Rochelle believed that after her sister lived with the Jimenez family for seven years, she knew the ins and outs of the family business, and they wanted to prevent her from divulging any information. They didn't want her to try to blackmail the family. From an official standpoint, she wasn't all wrong. Police said the Jimenez family, especially Lope, was engaged in fuel smuggling and that the fishing business was just a front for illegal activities. The Bureau of Customs had raided several vessels from the BSJ Fishing and Trading Company for suspected fuel smuggling in the past. 
The raid yielded 15 million pesos worth of illegal oil. The smuggling was true, but the Jimenez family, through its legal counsel, denied any involvement in Ruby Rose's death, much less having any motive behind her death. They said there was no reason to have her killed. In fact, they wanted Ruby Rose alive because there was an ongoing child custody case between her and her husband. They went on to say they were even winning the case, so why would they want to hurt her? Yes, they had the means to dispose of her body at sea, but if they did, why would they have done it so close to home when they could have just dropped it miles offshore? In Montero's statement, Third wasn't officially named as being involved in the planning of Ruby Rose's murder, but Rochelle insisted that her sister's husband was also behind the killing because of the custody fight over the kids and because he felt that his reputation had been damaged by her affair. Rochelle also said that Ruby Rose's main reason for wanting to separate from her husband was because their children saw how Third physically abused their mother. They saw Third slam Ruby Rose's head onto a cabinet. Ruby Rose had indeed filed a case against her husband for assault. Third had all the reasons to abduct Ruby Rose. Why else would the Jimenez family be involved? The police seriously began looking to gather information to implicate him as well. Rochelle told reporters that she was scared because she has supported her sister in her fight against the family. Not long before her sister disappeared, they joked about being put in a drum. They told their friends that if one of them went missing and they saw a drum floating on the river, be sure to look inside it because it might be one of them. When they were asked why they would make a joke like this, Ruby Rose said it was because the Jimenez family was capable of doing it. According to Rochelle, there was some truth to this possibility. She said that one of the things her sister might have known about in regards to illegal activities within the family was the murder of a tabloid reporter named Alberto Orsolina in 2006. She remembered Ruby Rose talking about his death. Orsolina was an employee of the Jimenez family before he became a reporter. The man who shot and killed Orsolina was later arrested and stated in an affidavit submitted to the police that Jimenez had ordered the killing. The gunman is now in jail for the murder of Orsolino, but the Jimenez family walks free. I'm smelling a hint of mafia family in the air. The Jimenez family decided to do an interview as a rebuttal to Rochelle's accusations. The third didn't want his family's name being dragged through the mud. He came forward in the media, letting everyone know that Ruby Rose had brought a third party into the course of their marriage. He claimed that after she gave birth to their oldest daughter, he financially supported her going back to school, and that's where she met her lover. He showed reporters a letter she had written, apologizing and a promising she would change. She claimed his wife remained unfaithful to him, but he chose to ignore her infidelity. The straw that broke the relationship camel's back was when he discovered that their oldest daughter saw her with another man. After that incident, he said the two of them rarely talked to each other until she left home in 2007. The day she left there, they had a heated argument over missing diamond earrings. He claimed that Ruby Rose tried to replace her diamond earrings with cheaper ones that belonged to her sister. I'm not sure why he mentioned this. I think it makes him look even worse. She can do what she wants with her earrings. They're hers. 
Is he trying to say that she was trying to steal her own earrings from him? He also claimed that the body and the drum didn't belong to Ruby Rose. Instead, he believed that she was alive, living somewhere else. I'd trust Casey Anthony running a daycare as much as I'd trust this guy. The authorities disagreed with Third's asinine statements. Ruby Rose's identity was clear. On August 24, 2009, the Department of Justice filed murder charges against Manuel Jimenez II, Manuel Montero, Eric Fernandez, Robert Ponce, and Leonard Descalso. A couple months later, charges were filed against Manuel Jimenez III as a co-conspirator. Attorney Manuel Jimenez, a.k.a. the second, voluntarily surrendered to the police. In what was most certainly a strategic move, he was placed into what is called hospital arrest at a local hospital due to an alleged illness. Months later, it was reported that the second was living happily in the hospital, not in the local jail. People wondered why he was able to stay so long when he didn't seem to be sick. They wondered why he couldn't be discharged when there was nothing wrong with him. Other patients should be able to use the room. The doctor said they couldn't evict or discharge him because he was a paying customer. The attending physician wasn't allowed to transfer him to another hospital because the court wouldn't allow him to be transferred. Doctors told reporters that only the nurses who were giving him medication were allowed into his room. According to one of my sources, he ended up staying in the hospital for four years. This seemed to be preferential treatment, and it makes no sense to me. I feel like the police should have full authority over where he's placed, whether he's sick or not. Of course, maybe it was the police who were giving him the good treatment. In preliminary hearings, Manuel Montero told the court that he was testifying because he was scared for his life. All the rest of the people involved in the murder couldn't be found, and he was worried he might be killed. Before he came forward, he tried to resign from his job at BSJ but his boss, Lope Jimenez, told him he couldn't leave and that he needed to stay there for one more year. This scared him, so he ran with his family as far away as possible. Then he decided the next best thing he could do was turn state's witness. The Jimenez defense was that, of course, they didn't kill Ruby Rose. Instead, business enemies were trying to frame them for her murder. If the Jimenez family went down, other companies would be able to take control. They stated that they loved Ruby Rose, and they tried their best to help the Barrameda family find her. The Jimenez family's legal counsel said that the men who supposedly worked for the family as bodyguards and chauffeurs didn't work for them at all. They claimed that Lope Jimenez and his brother, Second, were estranged. They weren't on speaking terms and hadn't been for a long time so there's no way that they would be able to work together to plan anything, let alone the murder of Ruby Rose. Lope didn't even attend the wedding of Ruby Rose and Third in 1999. Well, darn, if that doesn't clear his name, nothing will. The legal team denied that the crime happened in the BSJ compound. They also told the court that Lope fired Montero. He didn't resign. He didn't run and hide. He was just an angry ex-employee. They brought up discrepancies in Montero's statements. One thing that he mentioned 
or failed to mention, was that Ruby Rose's face was wrapped in tape. He didn't say anything about this in his statements, but when her body was found, her entire face had been taped. He also stated that he had talked to Ruby Rose, but how would she have been able to speak to him if her face was covered in tape? Meanwhile, police continued to look for the other men involved in the murder, and they were finally able to track one of them down in 2011. Leonard Descalso was arrested after a witness alerted police because he was seen in the neighborhood where his family lives. While searching for Descalso, authorities found out he was a former police officer, which led some to believe that the police were corrupt. The other suspects were still on the run. Descalso must have kept his mouth shut because I found absolutely no mention of his statements anywhere. In February 2012, the Court of Appeals suspended the hearings because the second filed a petition stating that the judge was impartial. He said the judge used grave abuse of discretion when he granted Montero's appeal to become a state witness. He also believed the judge shouldn't be on the case because the head prosecutor was a former classmate of the judges when they were in law school together. A few months later, his petition was granted and the case was awarded a new judge. Worse, Montero's agreement to be state witness was nullified. Montero had no deal going now, but it was still necessary that he come to trial to testify in front of a jury to his earlier sworn statements and to identify the accused. The National Bureau of Investigation, or the NBI, continued their search for the rest of the men accused in being involved in Ruby's murder. Eventually, they found Robert Ponce on November 8, 2012. He was the third of four accomplices finally in custody. In an interview with reporters, he admitted that he was one of the men who helped with the abduction of Ruby Rose and poured cement into the drum where her body was placed. In the NBI's report, it was stated that Ponce received a 7,000 peso allowance each month from Manuel III. In that same report, Ponce said he would be willing to turn state's witness too. It seemed as if the case was coming together nicely, but in a horrible turn of events, Manuel Montero suddenly recanted his statements. He said his original statement was all lies, and then he disappeared. He disappeared while he was still in the witness protection program. The police officially say he escaped their protection. Where did he go? Is he alive? If his statements were lies, how did he know where her body was? Did the masterminds of this murder get to him or his family? These are all questions that go on unanswered. Thank goodness we still have Ponce willing to turn state's witness, right? Wrong. He clammed up, and because of Montero's recanted testimony, the case fell apart. For some reason, the court allowed all three accused, Descalso, Ponce, and the second, to post bail in 2015. In the same year, the court removed Montero's unfinished testimony from the records. The court ruled they couldn't admit his previously sworn testimony as evidence without him being there in person. He was not there to finish direct and cross-examinations. The prosecution's best chance at winning the case had disappeared. 
Now all they had left was the testimony of policemen who had a minor role in the recovery of Ruby Rose's body. They couldn't identify the suspects. In 2019, ten years after Ruby Rose's body was found, Manuel Jimenez II and Manuel Jimenez III would be acquitted of murder. The court claimed there was lack of evidence on record after the main witness recanted and disappeared. The other three accused were acquitted soon after, and the last two remaining suspects, Lope and Fernandez, were also acquitted. After this maddening decision, the Barrameta family was left broken-hearted. Rochelle felt that they never really had a chance because the Jimenez family was corrupt and too powerful. They felt as if the Jimenez family had bribed people and the trial had been manipulated. Rochelle said, Justice was so unreachable, and we were at our lowest point when we heard the dismissal order. But the family hasn't given up. They tried to appeal to their president to look into the case further. They are still searching for justice for their beloved daughter. The family lawyer said that he continues to work with the Department of Justice and the fight is not over. The case was not dismissed based on the merits. It didn't even reach the point of arraignment, so if evidence comes, a trial can still happen. The Barrameda family is hoping that Manuel Montero will reappear. They have appealed to his good nature to come forward if he is alive, so they can find justice for their daughter's death. They also filed an appeal against the second judge, saying that the new judge showed gross negligence for going against the recommendations from four government agencies who stated that there was enough evidence for probable cause against the accused and for the case to push forward. This appeal was denied. The case could not go forward based on the retracted testimony of one witness. All seven men who were named suspects in Montero's statements are living their lives as free men. Well, technically six are free, Montero might be dead or in hiding. What infuriates me most about this case, and trust me, it was hard to pick because there were so many things that made me angry, but what I'm most mad about is that there were supposedly seven men involved. I feel like, given the right amount and the right kind of pressure, Ponce or one of the others would have rolled over and incriminated the rest. Montero found Ruby Rose's body in the middle of the damn ocean. He knew how she was positioned. Police only need one person to corroborate Montero's story. March 14, 2022, this week, marks the 15th anniversary of Ruby Rose's death. Her friends and family are still hoping for justice and seem to have the support of their community behind them. Their family says there are no updates and they are waiting patiently for whatever comes. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to give a special thank you to a couple of people today who wrote in nice reviews. The first person I'd like to thank is CJ84 Alan Micah Crystal who says, guaranteed to hear new stories not told on every other true crime show. Told perfectly. Five stars. New listener here. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and have yet to leave a review. But I like that she seems to really appreciate each review. I really, really do. Even sometimes reading them on the podcast. 
I appreciate that these are not stories that have been told over and over by every other true crime host. So I get to hear new cases. I really appreciate that these cases are all solved crimes, so you're not left without closure. Uh, I'm sorry to let you down on this one today. She goes into great detail. Also, I love the soothing voice. Thank you for giving me a new podcast that I'm excited to binge. Thank you so much. I'd also like to thank TD Coolest, who I know and love. I love that this podcast is based on true travel crimes and that the host lives on a boat. She has a nice and soothing voice, and I enjoy the boat sounds that I can sometimes hear in the background. It makes me feel like I'm sitting in the boat with her, hearing her tell me stories. Like a little mini vacation. Keep up the good work, Sandy. Thank you. If anyone's still listening to my rambling, I have to admit I'm a little sad because this is my last recording in the Bahamas. We will be sailing to Florida in a few days. Next week's episode will come from the United States. We've loved every minute of our time in the Caribbean, but we're also very excited to be returning home. Until next time, I'd like to wish you all fair winds and following seas.